All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, speaking to you from New York City on this, the 21st day of August, 2018. Before I talk more about today's show, I do like to remind you that I write a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. It's published every week, uh, and then there's a summary uh, letter that's published monthly that brings the best of each week uh, back to my subscribers. Uh, you can sign up for my letter at miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or call us here in New York at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426, call during normal work hours. I would also encourage you to consider subscribing to Chen Lin's letter, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Go to ChenPix.com, ChenPix.com. Chen is especially astute in the area of biotechnology. He's done extremely well for his his clients and for his own account. And so if you're interested in that area, you might want to uh, tune in with Chen. He really knows the principles in a lot of these developing companies and is very much involved keeping up to date with what's going on internally as much as possible with the companies that he follows and puts his own money into. So it's chenpicks.com. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. Also, I want to encourage you to keep your questions, comments, criticisms, and praises, uh, sending them along to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions at number four, uh, Taylor, uh, gmail dot, at gmail.com. Uh, would also like to mention that you can follow me on Twitter. The Twitter handle for me is jtaylormedia, J-A-Y Taylor Media. also want to thank our sponsors for making the show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are in resources, Bonterra Resources, Genesis Metals Corp., Klondike Gold Corp., Novo Resources, and Great Bear Resources. The title of today's show was going to be Worshipping the State, How Liberalism Became Our State Religion. Well, the name of the show, uh, as advertised, was taken from a book that was written with that same title, authored by Dr. Benjamin Weicker. He's a professor at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. Unfortunately, Dr. Weicker has fallen ill and will not be with me today, though I do hope to have him some time in the future on this show. Unfortunately, or, or fortunately, I should say, I was able to arrange for Dan Oliver to be with me in Dr. Weicker's place to talk about the credit cycle, and based on an article that he has recently written, I'm uh, retitling today's show, Looking for the First Cockroach to Emerge. Well, based on Dan's August 16th article, he shared with investors, uh, we we hope to get his idea about, are there some cockroaches starting to peer uh, in around the edges of the door uh, and underneath the woodwork? Uh, Dan should be able to help us. Uh, This morning, I read an article 
by George Will titled America is Overdue for Another Economic Disaster. Now, this may be wishful thinking on the part of the neocon George Will, who is among those who despise Donald Trump with an unfathomable hatred, perhaps because the Donald would like to do business with other countries rather than wage war against them, as I think George Will would suggest would be the better for us. But indeed, there is no denying that we are overdue for a major correction in the stock market and another recession, unfortunately. These things happen. As the article uh, rightly reminds us, assuming the stock market holds together for another day uh, tomorrow, the U.S. stocks will have officially enjoyed the longest run in history. This bull run began on March 6, according to this report, 2009, just one week before the birth of this this uh, show, Turning Hard Times into Good Times, started one week after that, back in the middle of March 2009. Back then, there was a lot of gloom and doom, and it was the time when the numbers of listeners on this show grew very dramatically, because gold was indeed seen as a safe haven. And, of course, money pumped into the economy to try to hold the global system together did lead to a rise in the price of gold upwards to over $1,900 at one point. Anyway, Dan Oliver will be with me during the second half of today's show to see if we can identify some of the emerging cockroaches that may be uh, giving us a hint that uh, we better batten down the hatches. Right after our first commercial break, uh, I will be speaking with uh, Dr. Quentin Henning. He'll join me to provide an update on the remarkable story of Noble Resources and its quest to find the next Whitwaters Rand deposit in northwestern Australia. And things have been quiet for the past number of months uh, in terms of assays and bulk samples, but there's some very important work that's going on and uh, ongoing exploration work that I think are, is very important, and we'll look to talk to Dr. Henning about that after our first commercial break. But right now, I'm pleased to tell you Michael Oliver is with me. Michael Oliver, no relative of Dan Oliver, Michael always reminds me, but he's here to give us his latest thoughts on the gold market and uh, you know, those of us who have been gold bulls have not been all that pleased about the action of the gold markets of late. But uh, thanks for joining me, Michael. What are, what are you seeing in the gold markets now? Well, uh, here's what we see. Um, <clears throat> the decline was deeper than we thought. I'll, I'll admit that. And it was also more mm-hmm. protracted. Normally, when uh, we measure markets via monthly momentum against a three-month average, for example, and we plot the, the momentum trend, the duration of it. You get five or six bars in one direction, you know, five or six months. This lasted eight months. And it was finally in the last couple of months of the decline that they actually made some price downside. The first uh, four or five months of the downside in momentum uh, actually was very little price decay. So it all sort of came late. And it was mm-hmm. a whoosh and a lot of emotion. And But when we reassessed everything, big picture down the little, we came up with the conclusion that the big picture stuff, annual momentum, had not changed. The decline has not done enough to hurt, mm-hmm. to cause us to do anything more than say, okay, for a while we're neutral, but we're not gone negative. Almost everybody mm-hmm. else is negative. Um, in part, that's also due to technical analysis of the dollar, which is, has been doing the opposite, had a counter trend rally in the context of a negative annual momentum trend. So it's big trends down. It's trend of the last four, five, six months has been up. And mm-hmm. people are so swayed by that, particularly the persistence of, let's say, the gold drop or the persistence of the dollar index rally, that they get swayed by that because time is a factor wears on people's nerves, I guess. Yeah, sure. Uh, and so they all shift it over it. to the opposite side view. You know, we're bullish on the dollar again, bearish on gold. Well, we didn't change. And frankly, uh, gold is right now, it's uh, 3% off last week's low within a matter of four or five days. 
And frankly, if it goes up another percent, as far as I'm concerned, you probably saw the low. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a percent's like $10, $11 for gold now. So uh, if you go up another percent beyond today's high, I think you've probably seen the low of the move. Then the issue becomes, okay, well, if that was the low, we go back up. At what rate and, you know, in what manner? Is it, is it slovenly? Is it uh, rapid? <clears throat> and I don't have an answer for that. Mm-hmm. But I do think that uh, about another percent up in gold for above today's high, and you can probably wipe your brow and say, okay, that was what the bears could do. And it's over, and they're all sitting there short and happy, and then all of a sudden it's going to unwind them uh, to the upside and dollar back to the downside. And dollar, by the way, is down very sharply today. And from last week's high, it's down 190-some-odd points, which is uh, mm-hmm. you know, that dollar index. It's a big move, rapid move. Euro yeah. has also turned back up sharply. So a lot of these factors that have been counter-trend in our view uh, starting to unwind. Uh, going mm-hmm. back toward the major trend direction, which for gold is up. Mm-hmm. Very interesting, uh, Michael. Uh, in the recent past, you've suggested, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe your your work has suggested that shares, the gold shares, might outperform bullion in this uh, in this mm-hmm. market. Uh, are you still of that mind? Yeah, I'm still. Despite the the tonal nature of gold miners and silver, which matches the gold miners, by the way. Uh, what happened is that after the, the first surge in gold from 2016, early 2016 to the middle, gold miners beat the pants off gold. I mean, there was no, no percentage comparison. They, their percentage up was triple that of gold. Uh, yeah. Then they fell back into mid-range on the gold mine, GDX and uh, ETF. Silver did the same thing. and It was it fell back to about halfway between the uh, mid-2016 rally high and the 2015 low and went to sleep for over a year. And then recently we rolled over in GDX and silver and sort of swamped out some recent lows, not the 2015 lows, but some other lows that were very obvious. And my suspicion is that was the cleansing effort, that downside, recent downside break. And that if we can flip gold back around and if you turn the dollar, and it doesn't take much to turn the dollar back down as far as I'm concerned, uh, then the whole game's back on again. And then again, the issue is, okay, well, assuming the game's flipped back to positive, at what speed What's the nature of it? And I, 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 right now, I don't want to venture an opinion on the speed of the upturn. Uh, I just know about where I think it will be signaled, and that's, like I said, about a percent above today's high gold, if you can close a day out up there. Uh, and at about that same distance below the dollar, for example. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, that's, uh, I, all these things that's are tending to move together uh, inversely. Yeah. And, uh, oh, I very interesting. And probably will flip back up, and when they flip back up, I think they'll probably beat gold on a percentage basis. Yeah. Well, that's uh, and and generally, when we're in a, a good long bull run for the precious metals, silver outperforms gold and silver mm-hmm. shares mm-hmm. as well. So yes. uh, gold does a little better. Will come back yeah. as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, just one more thing, with about a minute left here, the T bonds. I'm looking at your weekly chart. Uh, boy, there's mm-hmm. nothing seems more clear. Uh, then the breakdown of the T-bonds, this is a 15-year chart, I believe, we're going back to 2003. Mm-hmm. Structure's broken down, hasn't it? Yes, as far as I'm concerned, rates are going higher. Uh, you're, you're talking there about a long bond report, T-bond, which right. was 30 uh-huh. years. Same is true with the 10-year T-notes. Uh, they've broken massive multi-year structure on momentum. and uh, But the since April low, May low, excuse me, in the bonds, it's been our view that there's a counter-trend rally that will occur. And I think there may be more to it. Right now, bonds are at 145 level on the futures. I think you might see 148. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
that might be associated with the stock market wobble, which uh, I, I suspect is coming up. And uh, again, the stock market topping action is we sort of projected last year that is it going to be quick or going to be arduous? And we came up with the term arduous and said it's going to be arduous. And boy, has it been. I think mm-hmm. it's, it's very much like the 2000 top for the S&P. A lot of arm wrestling, upside, downside, but you go nowhere for so long. People forget that you haven't gone anywhere for so long. And then finally, late in the year, they roll you over. Mm-hmm. And next year is the real payoff on the downside. Mm-hmm. This year is the transition. And mm-hmm. um, that's, what I, that's my outlook right now. And ultimately, right. that bond market will be a contributor to that top stock market rollover because mm-hmm. uh, they put up with rates to, it, to some extent. But mm-hmm. I think a long bond's going to four to a quarter percent right now. It's about three, wow. uh, mm. and that's that's a pretty good move. <laughs> well, that would give a lot of competition for the equity markets, and of course, as long yes. as people stay convinced that the system is intact and there's no big danger as there was in 2002, 2008, 2009, uh, they stay in the system one one place or another, in and out of stocks, into bonds, out of stocks, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But when the system breaks down, that's what we want to talk to. Uh, Dan Oliver, your namesake in the last section today to talk about this whole notion of uh, the emerging cockroaches, as he calls them, the problems that are starting, are starting to emerge globally, um, yeah. because we saw a real loss of confidence in the system in 2008-2009. Uh, I'm not cheering for that, Michael. Nobody should be, but, uh, you know, the laws of nature will prevail, you know, as well as anybody. You're the one that teaches me that. The laws of nature yeah. really what what will prevail, and it uh, doesn't matter what the Fed does, ultimately, uh, markets will go where they have to go. You can't, All right, you well, can't, cheat, you can't cheat reality. That's right. Yeah, you can't fool Mother Nature, as they say. Well, thank you, Michael, for being with us. Always thank a you, pleasure Jay. to have you, and uh, we'll look to do it again next week if you're willing and able. Thanks so much. All right, folks, well, we do have to go to break, but don't go away. Dr. Quentin Henning, one of my favorite people, will be back to talk about Noble Resources and their search for the next Whitwaters Rand deposit in northwestern Australia. Don't go away. I'll be right back with Dr. Quentin Henning. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike gold rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. 
Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I'm really pleased to be with you and uh, really pleased to have Dr. Quentin Henning back with me once again. Uh, Dr. Henning is well known to uh, regular listeners of the show. He is a, a geologist of uh, very highly regarded geologist uh, around not only in North America, but I think around the world. Uh, certainly has been involved with major mining companies in the past, but not just a, a sort of a usual geologist. He's one that also has uh, sort of thinks outside of the box. He thinks creatively more than I would say most of the geologists that I've met up with over the many years that I've been involved in the exploration uh, mineral exploration business. But uh, the Noble Resources, of course, has been quite a story. Last summer, uh, the stock rose about you know, nearly tenfold in terms of U.S. money anyway. It went from around 70 cents uh, earlier in the year to uh, $7 by September uh, in when a large discovery of a field of nuggets was discovered in northwestern Australia. What makes Noble Resources Project so special is the vision of Dr. Henning and um, regarding how the great Whitwaters Rand deposit of South Africa was formed, which led him to northwestern Australia, where a similar geological environment exists. And lo and behold, since he started putting his geological theory to work, some extremely exciting reports have come out of this area of Australia that caused Novo's share price to take off like a rocket last summer. Since then, Novo has drifted lower. It's uh, trading in uh, these days at a $3 or three fifty range in U.S. money. Uh, over the past few months anyway, and as uh, investors sort of wait for some bulk samples uh, to come from uh, the assays from bulk samples that are coming from Commonwell and, and Purdy's Reward, the two target areas that uh, Dr. Henning and Noble are working on. While there have not been any blockbuster assay reports uh, recently to drive the stock higher or to cause any great excitement, that is not to say that some very important knowledge about this project has not been gathered while the market slumbers. In fact, a great deal of information was reported on August 16th, uh, which is what I want to ask Dr. Henning about today, because I believe it may help investors have a better understanding of uh, prospects uh, for their investment. Thanks for joining me again, Dr. Henning. Certainly, Jay. Uh, you're talking to me from uh, from Australia, from uh, Karatha, the, uh, the area where you're exploring, right? Correct, yeah. I've been down here for a few weeks uh, watching things on the project. It's been... Uh, it's it's always good to be in Australia and see the see the project close up. Yeah, it's your winter time down there. It is. Yeah, it's a little bit cooler. I'd say it's you know uh, <laughs> Fahrenheit. We're talking eighty five, ninety maybe, uh-huh. rather than uh, you know one hundred and fifty. Yeah. So it's not bad. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So uh, all right. Well, anyway, uh, you know we we were treated some extre- we were treated I should say to some extremely uh, fascinating assays early on. Um, we, there was something, uh, some trench samples that were taken from, I think it was Purdy's Reward, uh, something like 87 grams, 46 grams, 10.6, 15.7. These are some of the numbers I'm looking at from one trench, another one, 17.7 grams. Those are the kind of numbers that really fired the market up. But uh, what, what can you tell us about what's going on down there now? You uh, Will we have some assays sometime in the near future that might that might get the market thinking about Novo again? Sure, Jay. That's uh, that's always the the first question people are asking. Uh, it's it you know we're not pretending it's taking longer than than we anticipated to get pro- samples processed. We are taking much larger samples than we took last year's uh, last late last year at Purdy's Reward. So if people will recall, we took we started taking say three hundred ton or not three hundred ton three hundred kilogram samples mm-hmm. 
late last year, um, we we got those process. Some of the numbers that you just read are, are from those. And we realized uh, early this year that the, the sample size was uh, entirely insufficient. You know, we, we talked to our course gold expert, uh, talked about recommended sample size. Uh, he suggested that at minimum five tons. So we're, we're now targeting five to ten ton samples. Uh, we talked with various laboratories. We looked at various scenarios early in the year about how we could process five to ten ton samples. We even considered putting our own, uh, you know, sample equipment together. This would be crushing and grinding and, you know, concentration components. Mm-hmm. And the the conclusion we came to was to work with SGS Labs. Uh, SGS is a worldwide uh, analytical company. They're based in Switzerland. And they have a, a laboratory in Perth. It's a metallurgical laboratory. They had a lot of the equipment in place. Uh, we decided up with that because of the uh, that the equipment was in place. We figured it would take probably six to eight months just to secure it on our own. So, mm-hmm. so we we've been working with them closely now. Uh, I don't think any of us, uh, SGS or Novo combined, anticipated some of the issues we'd face. The rock was considerably harder than we thought it was going to be. You know, I don't want to belabor things, but it's taken a long time to work out various uh, various components of the this whole processing system. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, gotten a very good handle on things over the past three or four weeks. I can't remember when the last interview I, I did was, but uh, things have improved markedly. I've been watching the system de- develop or the modifications, uh, improvements being made. And uh, it looks like things are coming together nicely now. Um, the crushing component is near capacity. The uh, metal detecting circuit, for example, is, looks like it's close to capacity. There have been some delays with weather there, even though they built canopy over the thing, uh, you know, for probably three or four weeks from early, maybe the second week in July up until the first week in August. It was absolutely pouring rain here in Perth mm-hmm. and sideways. You know, and of course, most of this equipment is, you know, it's not entirely in, inside of a building, so uh-huh. it makes it difficult. But, uh, you know, the, the the things are improving right now are the concentration units. So this would be the gravity concentration circuit, including Falcon. They're putting a second Falcon in uh, so they can increase capacity there. And then they've got um, the assay stream that they're working on. Uh, they've re- reduced the overall number of assays, and we have we have a more streamlined process at this point. So things are turning around, but I'm, I uh, have indicated before that um, we are going to wait until we have uh, enough assays out of the various reefs and, and um, areas that we've talked about in news releases over the past few weeks. We really want to put a clear picture in front of people of assays uh, for the the well property and not just come out with um, one or two assays here and there. So mm-hmm. it, it'll be a, a, another little while, maybe uh, two or three or four weeks, something like that. But we will have uh, some assays to put in front of people that allow us to talk meaningfully about the geology that uh, and the grades behind it that we've shown people recently. So the news release that you mentioned uh, was issued late last week. And Really what we're trying to do there is give people a very clear picture of some of the things we're seeing on site. Um, the news release spec- you know, specifically talks about 
the continuity of the conglomerates and how we are now discovering a relation between the conglomerates at Comet Well and with those we saw last year at Purdy's. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, with that, I'll, I'll, I'll let you ask questions or I can ramble on if you want. Well, it, it, no, I, I think um, just just one thing, I was under the impression, getting back to the uh, assaying of your bulk samples, that the rock wasn't going to be a, all that hard. So what you're saying is it's a harder rock, so it's a harder, more probably more expensive crushing uh, aspect to this project than you might have anticipated early on? Well, the, the lower conglomerate in particular, this would be the, what we call the lower cannibal conglomerate, is particularly uh-huh. hard. Uh-huh. And what, what resulted from that is the crushers they had at SGS, they, they simply couldn't cut it. So we tried putting, uh, they, they, you know, trying to find little crushers is not necessarily easy, but they sure. secured, uh, you know, some new crushers. One of them worked, one of them didn't work. They had to get yet another one that was a little beefier. And each time they did this, they had to reinstall the crushers in the yard. And the yard is small. Uh, they had to, you know, they have a lot of clients, you know, with jobs there. So they kind of had to crawl all over stuff to get these things put in. And, and those were those were what call, caused most of the delay. It was just simply yeah. the logistics of getting these crushers in. But, but you know, like like I said, we're not belaboring that. We're past that now. And, sure. And, yeah. Yeah. Well, I understand too that you want to get enough assays from the from the area that you're working on, uh, not to skew the picture in one in one direction or the other. Right. You want to have as a, an, an accurate as much accuracy as possible, so the market doesn't go crazy or get overly depressed or whatever. You want to you want to get accurate information out there. And so those early assays were extremely exciting. They drove the stock up, and who's to say what the assays, what the average will be? But that's what we're, of course, waiting for. And if I heard you right, you said maybe in two to four weeks we might get some information in that regard. That's right. Look, uh, when we presented the numbers that you talked about, that was in February of this year. And those were really uh, the first time we were able to talk specifically about the gold that the range of assays we were seeing you know things like that we want to have something similar to talk about it at comet well so that people fully understand what we're seeing okay now with respect to your 16th uh, august uh, news release uh you talked about two gold bearing conglomerates uh, that uh, do both of those conglomerates extend from purdy's reward on the northeast to uh, just a comet well in the southwest, to the southwest? Yes, yeah, so what what we're seeing is that uh, as we go from comet well, uh, where we started exploring in February this year, uh, there's there's two well-developed gold-bearing reefs. There's one at the base of the, the whole conglomerate sequence, and then there's another one about 15 meters or so above that. Uh, we found these, these two reefs, uh, you know, partly through that, the prospecting was done by prospectors looking for metal detectors last year. You could see the dig holes and stuff. But a lot of it was done, uh, you know, through very careful excavation. We we were a little different how we approached trenching this year rather than opening up uh, deep tra- channels in the ground. We actually kind of cleared the area uh, very gently. We blew, you know, dug up the soil and blew away any loose rock and stuff and exposed bedrock. And it allowed us to see things much better. So we, you know, we got down on our hands and knees. And you know, it sounds easy to find these things, but when you're talking <laughs> about hill, hill slopes that are 150 meters long, yeah. and you got to dig through the soil and, and actually examine them, 
close up, it takes a little while, but we we were able to identify each discern or discern each reef. And what's really important is we found uh, a marking unit with the upper reef in particular that is closely associated with it. So it's a, it's a tophaceous horizon. This is ash that came out of a volcano. At the time, sediment was being laid down. Mm-hmm. And that little layer is very distinct. So I, I would, I'm telling you, it's a testimony to the geology of the, the team here. Mm-hmm. They have been able to find this little tiny layer. It's about maybe, you know, a foot thick. It's a very thin, thin little mm-hmm. thing. And they were able to follow it along surface. And when they when they see it now, they're able to to clear things away, dig down, and you know, remarkably, they're able to hit this the, the gold bearing conglomerate associated with it. So it's it's really exciting in my view. Uh, that's part of the message I wanted to wanted to convey in the news release. Mm-hmm. But then what we found is that the reef that that particular layer, uh, as it extends northeastward, mm-hmm. uh, the basement underneath starts rising up gradually and we found that that layer effectively is the comp- the, the same conglomerate that we saw at Purdy's Ward last year. So it, it, you know, we're seeing continuity over about three and a half kilometers at this point in that particular unit. The the bottom one as, as it trends northeastward uh, it pinches up against the basement so it's not present at Purdy's Ward. Okay. But, but it's remarkable that, that the upper one that we can follow very easily now because that one we now are are readily able to see and now thinking about the areas we can say do large-scale bulk sampling in the future. These are ones we've talked about, um, you know, in terms of a, a trial uh, trial mining phase. Mm-hmm. All right. And uh, with regard to that, can you talk a little bit about the objective of your of your exploration work um, this year, I believe you you need to get over a hurdle so you can actually do some some mining, uh, bulk mining, or or yeah. give me the right yeah. terminology. Yes, Jay. So it's it's very critical that we we get some, some bulk sample results uh, that'll help us support what's called a mineral resource report. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do not, or sorry, a mineralization report, not a resource, a mineralization report, a mineralization report is uh, part of, it's one component of what's needed to convert an exploration uh, license, which, you know, we're working on exploration licenses into uh, what's called a mining lease. Uh, the, the process involves, you know, telling the government here in Western Australia that we have a body of rock that is, is mineralized. It's, it doesn't have to demonstrate economics and so forth, but it has to show that we have you know, a body of rock that we think uh, we can demonstrate the top and the bottom and and the extent to, and say it it looks like it's running X Y Z gram you know across strike of X kilometers, and then uh, once we submit that, we also have to have components of, of a native native title agreement, a, a native title agreement with a mining uh, component. And we also have to have some levels of permitting that, that are required to undertake mining or trial mining. So we're working in all of those at, at this point. Uh, I'd say as an exploration company, it's kind of exceptional. We've got a very good team in place to handle all aspects of, of these processes. Uh, and we're really moving this forward as though we're going to go mining, uh, you know, trial mining as a start. But mm-hmm. it's not 
uh, your typical project by any stretch. This is not a <laughs> drill, it, drill it, assay it, you know, put a resource together, et cetera, et cetera. This is going to be uh, try to get enough data to, to put a mineralization report, then go try it out. Yeah, it is, uh, to say the least, a, a very unusual project. I mean, that's an understatement for sure. You would know better than anyone about that because you've been on traditional projects. It is a bit frustrating, of course, those of us who are used to seeing uh, systematic drilling going on and a resource quickly uh, quickly calculated. That's not the way. I mean, you just really had to learn how to, how to handle this and how to explore and how to assay it and so forth. Uh, you know, I, I know that you have staked a huge amount of ground there in Australia, most of which is not where you're currently focused. It's down dip into the, the ancient um, shallow sea basin. Uh, and uh, as a geologist, uh, a petroleum geologist who's had a lot of experience in conglomerates, uh, who has a big position in Novo, who is very, very bullish, and he said, and I quote, he says, today's news, referring to the 16th of August, he says, today's news release is important in that the depositional system Novo is exploring is open-ended on each end of this current trend. I believe at the end of the day, years from now, this area will be a tiny portion of a basin-wide nearshore environment, hundreds of kilometers, he puts in parentheses, and some distance down dip from this point, nearshore, and around into the basin. The energy will have abated and the source of gold will become more disseminated as finer gold sourced from a gold precipitation event, um, as as, uh, you've talked about in the past, Quentin. Uh, This sounds a little bit like like what you sort of envisioned in the past. Uh, This fellow goes on to say, and he dreams of some very extremely bullish numbers that I think I I don't want to talk about now. This was on a bullboard, and I know people should take bullboard messages with a large grain of salt. Uh, but are you think this guy's smoking something funny, or, or or are his dreams valid as far as you're concerned? Okay, well, look, I, I you know, I can't, you know, I can't. <laughs> I don't want to sound uh, uh, crazy, Prom- <laughs> promotional or crazy, look, right? Uh, yeah, yeah pr- promotional. Um, you- but here's here's I think the context I would put around that those statements. Um, first of all, the area that we are exploring at Comet Well and Purdy's is roughly eight kilometers of strike on this basal kilometer sequence. Uh, what's really important for people to understand is it, it is a small area uh, out of the Pilbara. The Pilbara region is about 650 kilometers east-west. It's a very long uh, strike length of the Fortescue group. So he is right. We're exploring a very small area. Uh, there have been numerous discoveries of gold you know, in the past 18 months in this region. Uh, you know, for example, east of us, there are some discoveries um, with the com- little companies like DeGray and, and others that have identified basically these same strata, these same same units. And what's really exciting, Jay, is that we can, now that we've seen this, like this tough horizon at uh, Comet Well, we, we actually can say, wow, they have a, a you know, a toughish horizon over at, at Edgina or at uh, DeGray's ground. And we have taken that knowledge and gone out and now looked uh, in, in new areas. Uh, because it is cooler this time of year, we can get out and do some exploration. It's one very important component to what we're doing. And I would say in a few weeks, we'll be able to tell the world about uh, some really exciting things uh, that, that, we, that will help support the, the 
you know, notion that this is a basin-wide uh, system. Mm-hmm. Uh, Merindi, for example, Merindi has gold in conglomerate down at the Bellary Dome, which is about 100, and, I think, 180 kilometers due south of Comet Well. You step mm-hmm. back and think about that, and you know, it's not. We don't think it's just a fluke. Uh, we're not saying that the whole thing is, you know, universally mineralized at economic levels or things like that. Sure. But what we're saying is that we see. Uh, gold occurrences in the same stratigraphic position in multiple locations. Uh, they all have very similar uh, appearance in many respects. Uh, you know, these are, are water-worn nuggets, but uh, as we've talked about, there's a halo uh, effect around the nuggets, a fine green mm-hmm. gold halo. Uh, that gold halo, it, it does indeed appear to be a precipitation event. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about that recently at some, a technical conference here in Australia called the AIG. Uh, back in early August, so yeah, we're we're starting to put that kind of a picture together. Uh, but right. you know, we got to temper it with uh, reality too. You know, of course, of course, yeah. of course. Uh, you know, Doctor Henning, you are a scientist, and uh, you you, uh, you you get excited about your story, uh, but at the same time, you keep your feet on the ground. We're very thankful. We're out of time. It just has gone too fast. There's a lot more questions I had for you. Hope we can have you back again sometime in the near future. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Jay. Appreciate it. All right, folks. uh, We do have to go to break now. Don't go away. Dan Oliver of Marmican Capital will be with me right after the break, so don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Noble has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold Project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Noble is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have Dan Oliver back on the show with me today. And I'm really thankful to Dan for being willing and able to come on my show on a very short notice because just yesterday I learned that Dr. Benjamin Weicker uh, had fallen ill and would not be able to come on the show. So we certainly uh, wish Dr. Weicker a quick recovery and hope to have him on the show uh, in the future sometime. But uh, really, we're, uh, we're very pleased and very privileged to have Dan with us today. He as a managing director of Mermican Capital. Uh, he was previously involved with Berrien Capital uh, LLC, and um, he's been around for, for a few years. I've, I've learned to know Dan um, as a real honest, hard money 
uh, advocate, a, a free market uh, advocate, and for sure, I think, understands the markets and what really drives them as well as anybody we have on this show. So thanks, Dan, for coming on again. Well, thanks for having me. Really like to talk to you about your August 16th missive titled The First Cockroach. Well, it's certainly an interesting title, although cockroaches are not something that, uh, that, that we like too much here in New York City. They're very common. Uh, but we we hope the cockroaches you're talking about, which refer to the market, uh, to the equity market, or to I guess to the financial markets, the credit markets around the world, uh, we would rather not see them appear at all any time. But by uh, by by your um, by your article, it seems as though you're a little bit concerned. We may be seeing the first of some cockroaches, meaning first problems potentially uh, for this credit cycle. Do I have that right? Yeah, well, living in New York, you know that what they say is when you see one cockroach, there's never just one. Right. It's the first one you see. (laughs) There are millions more on the walls. And and that's the point. If you look back at the 19th century and this century when we have good records about credit bubbles and their collapse, to go back to what happens, the the way a bubble uh, uh, gets produced is the banks produce credit. And everyone takes their credit and goes out and buys assets, which pushes asset prices up which is the same thing as saying you're pushing discount rates down, right? All an asset is is the value of its discounted future cash flows. So as the right. price goes up, the discount rate goes down. And, and what happens is, as it happens to senior investments first in the money centers and traditional investments, all of a sudden people discover that they can't, uh, they're not going to yield they, they need, that they expect to live on, that the market should give them. And so this, this is the stated policy of the Federal Reserve. Bernanke came out and said, you know, that the, that the lower rates were meant to push people out of uh, treasuries and stocks and, and into these riskier assets. And that's what they do. They go in, they, they buy subprime auto or they buy subprime real estate or uh, historically what they do is they go to funny jurisdictions like Argentina and Turkey, places like that, where you get much, much higher yields. And of course, yields are higher because it's riskier. Uh, yeah. but, but that's why capital flows there because it's pushed, not because it wants to go there. It's because it's pushed out of the money centers by the central banks and by the bank system itself. And then what happens is you, you find these third world countries showered with all this capital. This is great. And, and what did Turkey do? It went out and, and started building shopping malls and, and, and big office towers and all, all these glorious things that, that analysts like to see and that the local elite likes. But none of them are very productive. They, these are all consumption items. Uh, and so you don't get cash flow returns on, 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 those, on those investments. And, and, and that's the problem. All of a sudden now, uh, you, you're, you, you've invested in these countries. You're not going to cash your need. And then they blow up first. And, and that, again, you can trace this back well in the 19th century. A lot of the panics that England experienced would occur first in Argentina, which was their mm-hmm. frontier, all the commodities down there. And then it would creep back towards the center. And so what we're seeing is as the Fed raises rates, nobody cares in the, in the, uh, in, in the developed markets yet. But the emerging markets are having terrible, terrible problems. Uh, because they can't refinance this thing. You know, I, I was struck by, you can go to the Federal Reserve website, Jay, and they actually have a data series of the dollar to Turkish lira exchange rate going uh-huh. back well into the 70s and 60s. What's incredible about it is whatever scale you look at it, it's a perfect parabola. Right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. in other words, the, the, the Turkish lira just, just you know, hyperinflates all the time, except uh-huh. really for the last 10 years when uh-huh. the European experiment, all the European banks were funding Turkey because it's next to Europe. Uh, with all this capital. So you had this moment of stability that was being underwritten by all this capital flow from, from Europe and, and the U.S. into places like this. And all of a sudden now we're reverting to the historical uh, pattern that these, uh, that these places are uh, consumed capital or death for capital and they blow up. And, and then what happens is when 
the currency started cratering, uh, which is what happened, of course, in the Asian crisis of 97 mm-hmm. and, and sure. every time in history and, and happening now is uh, that the capital went there gets, gets eviscerated, right? You're stuck. You own this shopping mall uh, that the rents are payable in Turkish lira. Well, that's not worth anything anymore. And so then the Turkish banks blow up and then the European banks that lent the money to the, European, the, the Turkish banks blow up. And so that's the transmission mechanism back to the center. And especially in Europe where the banking systems, as you know, uh, especially in Italy, a place like that, uh, Spain, are already chock-a-block full of their own malinvestments. And now they got to add the Turkish ones on top of that. And so but, you know, one of the things I've been talking about on your show and elsewhere for a long, long time is when the Fed starts raising rates, uh, and again, there's data on this going back hundreds of years, uh, no one cares until all of a sudden someone tips over. In, 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 2000, in 2007, it was a couple internal hedge funds and Bear Stearns. Right. Um, someone's wrong-footed or someone's too levered and, and they blow up and everyone says, oh, it doesn't matter. No one cared about the Bear Stearns yeah. funds, right? It was either Bear mm-hmm. Stearns bailed them out. I mean, it was, you know, it was a headline, but really cares. But then the next one comes, and the next one comes, the next cockroach comes, right? And then all of a sudden you realize the whole cupboard's full of them. And, and, then, and then the system locks up all of a sudden. I read from a day I'd forgotten about, which was that when the Thai bat blew up in the 97 crisis, Mm-hmm. Uh, in July, the U.S. markets didn't have their mini crash until uh, October, right? It took a few months for mm-hmm. that blow to reach our shores. And, and then what's interesting is, as you may recall, uh, Greenspan had started raising rates subtly to try to constrain the internet bubble. And when the Asian crisis hit and long-term management hit, he, he, he lowered rates suddenly, right? And that's what created the big last spike into, uh, uh, into the 2000 internet bubble before that collapsed. But the difference now is that the Fed is, is, has a tightening stance. So, again, in, in a normal environment, I say that, quote-unquote, there has been really no normal environment since 1913, but yeah. let's just pretend for a second. Um, seeing all these problems, the Fed might get started getting nervous and maybe getting ready to ease conditions to prevent the contagion from these credit periphery uh, back to the center. Uh, but the problem is that they have telegraphed, and they're very much of a mind to tighten, and they're doing it because inflation is running a little hot, Asset markets are still very hot, so they say, "Well, gee, you know, domestically, we got these problems. We need we need higher interest rates." But all that's going to do is exacerbate the problems in the credit periphery, uh, which are going to hit the, the center. You know, I don't know if it takes a few months or a year. I mean, each each episode is slightly different, but for sure it will, and it does it because the high rates uh, tip over malinvestments, and, and obviously the, the weaker ones go first, and the more solid ones go go last. So that that's where we're headed. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, I mean, if you're, I guess, you know, Turkey's borrowing U.S. dollars or, or uh, Euro do- uh, uh, Euro European money, uh, the euro, uh, and their currency is going down dramatically, uh, U.S. interest rates going up. So if you're a borrower in Turkey, you're in pretty bad shape now. All of a sudden, in terms of your own currency, you're in a, you're, you're in a lot of hurt. You're in a bad shape. Oh, yeah. And, the same and this thing, is not something happened, Jay, in Eastern Europe. In, in before the 2008 crisis, uh, they were all uh, taking mortgages out in Swiss franc terms mm-hmm. because Swiss franc interest rates were so low. So it made a lot of sense to do it for a few years. And all of a sudden, their currencies devalued against the Swiss franc. The Swiss franc are really strong, and uh, it's the same situation now. You can't possibly pay your back, debt back because uh, the, your, your currency is so cheap compared to, concern, to the currency you owe the debt in. Yeah. It's the same story. Yeah. Well, you know, it seems, uh, I guess, from what we hear anyway, President Trump is putting some pressure on, on uh, Jerome Powell to ease up a bit. I mean, he's always, I think, has 
made it be known from the start that he wasn't uh, interested in a, in a strong dollar uh, for his trade reasons, uh, wanting to restore, wanting to destroy some manufacturing or get some jobs back into America. I think he'd rather see uh, a weak dollar, at least. Uh, do you think, uh, do you see that him having some, to what extent, I guess my question is, to what extent does the president have anything to say about what the Fed does? Uh, do you think Jerome Powell will listen to him or, or which way do you think he'll swing? Yeah, I mean, so it's a good question. I mean, officially, the Fed is independent. So <laughs> Trump can rent and rave all he wants and Powell can do what he wants. Yeah. And, you know, unofficially, what, what happens is, again, looking at the through the archives of the Fed and, and reading the history books, is um, the, the politicians can put tremendous pressure on the Fed because Congress, anytime it wants to, can change the law, change the rules to start making monetary policy on their own. And the Fed jealously guards its dependence. Right now, it's just Trump. So I think Powell can safely ignore him. Uh, what he can't do is if the U.S. starts having problems and you start getting congressmen uh, making noises and all of a sudden Trump has support in Congress to do something with the Fed, that would really spook them. And, and they would respond to that. Um, as, uh, you, know, I mean, you may remember him when Volcker jacked Reagan up. He was, uh, they had their impeachment threats and all kinds of things. It's only because Reagan stood with him that he was able to withstand the pressure from Congress. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have that pressure right now because of the, the U.S. is still doing well. But don't think for a moment that pressure won't come the moment that the markets start uh, falling mm-hmm. apart. And then I think the Fed will find itself in, 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 in you know, big trouble. I mean, again, <laughs> Jay, we know what they're going to do, right? We know yeah, we know what they're the U.S. Do. market falls apart, they're going to print like crazy. And, and the point in my letter was that the, the longer you delay intervening in these markets, Right. The, the, the more you have to intervene, the, the harder it is to get a spinning top going again. And so the, the problem we're facing now, the problem the Fed's facing, is that, uh, that they're stuck on this tightening uh, routine when the rest of the market's falling apart, which means that when it hits the U.S., they're, have to, they're going to have to take extreme actions to keep U.S. markets from falling apart. I, I'm actually kind of excited about this, change because if this is what we've been waiting for us for 10 years, right? Since 2008, it looked like the world was coming to an end, and normally credit collapses of that magnitude, like in 29, or, or go back to 1874, or, or 1837, places like that, the whole system blows up, or, or, or collapses, and you start from scratch. And Bernanke, uh, to his credit, managed to re-blow a bigger bubble. Uh, and, yeah. and that's something that the gold investors did not expect. I think a lot of the traditional guys didn't expect it either, but he did it. Uh, but the result is now the bill is coming due for that, and the bill will be bigger now than it was in 2007, and uh, and this is the moment when uh, when the system starts wobbling, and it's a more unstable system than it was 10 years ago. Uh, it, the, the, I think that you know gold is really going to have a much bigger move now than it would have had back then had the system collapsed. All right. Well, the last time, uh, 2008, 2009, gold got hit really hard along with everything else. I think when the margin clerk calls, you have to That's sell right. what you're able to sell. There's always That's a bid right. for gold. There's always a bid for gold. Gold was taken down. Silver was taken down along with everything else, but it didn't stay down long. Gold rallied and, and then eventually you know, hit 1900 by 2011. And um, so what are your thoughts this time? I mean, we're likely to see more cockroaches coming out, as you say, there's where there's one, there's not just one, there's there's millions, there's lots of them. I can, you know, you look at Brazil, Russia, South Africa, uh, China, for goodness sakes, China, I saw sometime recently they borrowed something like $2 trillion offshore, U.S. dollars offshore, and then have lent them onshore to Chinese interests. I, I can't imagine, uh, you know, that that's got to be easy for China to repay either uh, with if the dollar continues to 
to show the strength it's shown recently. So, um, so I guess my question is, what do you see happening? Are, you, are we likely to see the same thing happen again? The margin clerk calls, gold gets hammered down really hard with everybody. If that's the case, then hold some dry powder so you can pick up some more, some more gold and some more gold shares uh, before yeah, the big so, rally so, comes. So, Joe, I've, I've been very agnostic about that question um, because I think there are different factors involved. You're absolutely right. In 2008, uh, uh, you had a momentum trade in gold. Remember, gold had gone up almost parabolically from the bottom. And so a lot yeah. of guys were in that trade, levered up. Uh, and, and then the, the, the crisis hit the U.S. first, don't forget. It hit the first world first with real estate. And so all the margin calls went out, and all those momentum traders were, were thrown off, and, and anyone on Lever and the Comex was, was, was sold out. And that's what drove that liquidation. And then, of course, as you point out, the moment that was done, uh, gold took off like a rocket uh, once, yeah. you know, once that was, selling was done. This is different because I don't think there are a lot of Western speculators uh, levered up in the gold trade. We did no. momentum trade, certainly. And, and if anything, these spec traders short gold. So when the market yeah. is closed, they're going to buy it. I think what's happening now is if you get out of the first world and go to a place like Turkey and China, a, a lot of private loans are backed by gold collateral. And uh. So when you default on your loan, your, your lender takes your gold, and he's got to sell it because he's got his own obligations to meet. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, uh, uh, Dennis Garfman had something in his letter this morning that apparently the, the Turkish Central Bank's gold position went from over 500 tons uh, uh, three months ago to over 200 tons today. So ah. they've, they've, they've gotten rid of 300 tons of gold just in three months to their currency now. Apparently, I've, I've read commentary that they, they count as gold on their balance sheet commercial uh, de- commercial bank, Turkish commercial bank deposits, and so it may just be the gold move from the central bank back to the commercial mm-hmm. banks. But either, either way, it's showing you that there's a lot of credit stress, and that gold is very involved in that in, in that stress. And so I, I think what's happening now is it's not margin-driven liquidity selling; it, it's it's collateral selling in, in the east that's driving it because that's where the problems are happening first this time. But again, that that will burn itself out. And and uh, and what's what's I think very bullish is that the stance of Western traders is so bearish, and so once gold gets a bid, once that dynamic uh, plays out, gold's going to go a lot higher. I mean, again, it's hard to imagine that uh, having Turkey descend into maybe not hyperinflation Venezuela style, but you know, a serious bout of inflation is going to be net negative for gold or any other country for that matter. So, it, so I I don't think that this is going to last for very long. I think once gold. Uh, freeze to sell that dynamic, and, and you have this enormous uh, uh, spec short position uh, in, in gold in, in Western markets that you can really see it going a tear. Well, uh, Michael Oliver, who is on with us the first segment, is looking, uh, he, he believes that the T-bond has broken down, that we're in for much higher rates, um, and he's looking for a 4%, I believe if I remember right from a few minutes ago, he's looking for 4% on the T-bond. Uh, what would that do? What do you think rates like that would do to this current market environment? Yeah, I love that question because I have such a heterodox view on it. And, and that is, uh, again, to the extent that there's a huge offshore dollar debt, higher interest rates, the first order effect is to strengthen the dollar, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, it, there's 10 trillion dollars of offshore debt. Forget about the onshore debt, right? And if yeah. you have dollar debt and rents go up, you need to hold more dollars on hand to meet your interest payments, uh-huh. your interest collateral. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. so there's a big short squeeze on dollars. The longer term effect of that is that if you look at the Fed's balance sheet, uh, it has gold on it. It's got, it's got uh, uh, you know, 7% of its current uh, uh, assets are gold at current market prices. 
And then 93% are very long-term bonds. And long-term bonds are very sensitive to interest rates. So as rates go mm-hmm. up, those things devalue. And when you yeah. look at the gold price versus the nominal interest rate uh, in, in, 90, in the 1970s, they a graph uh, superimposed. It's a perfect match. As, as rates went up, the bonds got crushed in the Fed's balance sheet, and gold went up to compensate for that. So right. I think the short-term effect is the strong draw. The, the, the more longer-term, more powerful effect is a huge gold bull market that we've all been waiting for for the last all right. decades. All right, Dan, we have to leave it go at that. We're out of time. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. Greatly appreciate it. Folks, that's all the time we have this week. Next week, I'm going to have David McElvaney with me and uh, I think Chen Lin as well. Hopefully, Michael Oliver will be back. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Bonterra Resources, an advanced exploration company, is aggressively expanding its high-grade Gladiator gold deposit in Quebec, Canada. Over the last 12 months, Bonterra has raised over $60 million and has attracted strategic investors Eric Sprott, Kirkland Lake Gold, and New York-based Vanek Gold Fund. Bonterra is focused on updating its 43101 resource in the second half of 2018 and will incorporate up to an additional 100,000 meters of drilling, where the dimensions of the Gladiator deposit have been expanded to date nearly 500%. Bonterra trades in Canada under the symbol BTR and in the U.S. under the symbol BONXF. Often referred to as one of the best teams in junior gold exploration, having discovered a 5 million ounce gold mine and sold a second company amidst discovery, the management behind Orin Resources now has a world-class exploration portfolio within Canada and Peru. Projects that give the company one of the largest direct pipelines for major discoveries globally, with one of the deepest technical teams to explore them. Entering into its third year of aggressive pursuit, Orin is expecting results from two of their major projects throughout the rest of this year. For the latest, head to orinresources.com and subscribe.